ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the LSE for this evening's event on the opening night of the LSE Beverage 2.0 Festival, uh, which is taking place all week until Saturday as part of a whole year of activities at LSE, rethinking the welfare state for the 21st century and a global context. Um, my name is Megan Beddo. I'm the Activities and Development Officer of the Students' Union. Some of you might have been expecting Mahatia Pasha, the General Secretary, this evening, who unfortunately has a chest infection, um, so I stepped in last minute. Um, over the course of the festival week, we're going to be exploring five beverage giants identified in Beverages 1947 report, Reimagined for Today. Tonight, we explore Beverages Giant of Idleness, which we have reframed as the enormous challenge of the future of work. Clearly, this is a topic that resonates particularly with students, and I'm delighted to be joined this evening by current LSE master's student, Dhruv Washish, um, recent LSE alumna, Saloni Hiryu, uh, and head of LSE Generate and careers consultant at LSE, Laura Jane Silverman to discuss our hopes and fears for our automated future, but also to ask whether younger generations are being sufficiently prepared for this brave new world. This evening's event is gonna be very interactive and we're really keen to find out about what you and the audience think about these issues. So I'm going to be asking our panel questions, but I'll regularly be turning to you in the audience. Um, we'll be using Poll Everywhere for the interactive parts of the evening and you can join in the session by going to pollev.com slash LSE festival um, and the link is behind me on the screen. Um, uh, you can either do this via the app or you can type it into the web page. Wi-Fi access is available via the cloud for the public or edge your own for those in participating institutions from LSE. Um, so please do get your phones out and devices and start logging in, get ready to take part. Finally, before we kick off, um, let me remind you that for those Twitter users in the audience, the hashtags for today's events are hashtag LSE beverage and hashtag LSE festival. Um, also, I know I'm encouraging you to use your phones this evening, uh, but please do make sure they're on silence so as not to disrupt the event. The event is being recorded and will hopefully be made available as a podcast, subject to no technical difficulties. So, I'm going to begin by asking the panel a bit about themselves. Um, Saloni, we'll start with you. Uh, could you tell us a bit more about your career path? Um, so, I started off with an undergrad and a postgrad uh, post degree in journalism in India after which I worked for a while in a newspaper office in New Delhi. But at that point, uh, there was a huge swing to the right and there was also a lot of uh, corporate takeover of, of media houses, which didn't really align well with my ideas. And so I didn't last very long. And I decided to take a break and think about what I wanted to do after. And I realized that I'd gravitated towards uh, gender a lot, uh, studying about gender. And so I was also privileged enough to not have to work to earn a living. I was supported by my family. And so I decided to come to the LSE and do a master's in gender, as a gender institute, which is now, I believe, the Institute of Gender Studies. And um, so I came here in 2015 and started my master's program. And through the course of that program, I realized that I was very interested in um, studying women's economic participation, which led me to, uh, to a job at the International Labor Office in Geneva, International Labor Organization in Geneva. And uh, for the past year and a half, I've been working on uh, reports and articles and blogs which have to do with the future work uh, women's employment, informal work, income inequalities, etc., etc. Um, and for the past couple of months, I've taken a break. I'm freelancing and I'm looking for new and exciting opportunities in research and policy. Thank you. Um, and can you tell us a bit more about your plans for the future? You've touched on it already, but <laughs> tell us what it looks like. So PhDs in the pipelines, I'm not very sure because it's difficult to get in with the funding. Um, I would be very interested in some fieldwork experience, but again, I'm not very sure. So I've, just, I've sort of taken a break now to uh, think about what I want. Yeah. Cool, thank you. Um, and Dhruv, can you tell us a bit about yourself? I know you have a Silicon Valley startup, so how did that come about? Great. Um, thank you so much and uh, wonderful panel. Great to be here. Uh, so I've actually worked for the past five years around entrepreneurship uh, in the States, in Bangalore and in San Francisco. Uh, in London as well. Uh, so basically, I've based, worked with uh, the industry entrepreneurs, DIE. So that's the world's largest not-for-profit focused on entrepreneurship. So they're basically looking at uh, creating ecosystems around the world to enable entrepreneurs get better access to capital. Uh, post that, I uh, started my startup in uh, Silicon Valley. So we primarily use virtual reality for education. So it came about uh, at this uh, unique sort of uh, entrepreneurship school called Draper University. So they, it's run by this French capitalist called Tim Draper, and uh, he invites entrepreneurs from all across the globe to come in there uh, and pitch their ideas that they think are going to sort of change the future. And that's uh, basically where it stemmed from. So I pitched the idea to my now co-founder, who was studying at Carnegie Mellon then, 
and uh, yeah, it just made sense to sort of use virtual reality for education. And uh, we actually won the first place at the pitching competition. So we moved on from there, uh, raised a bit of capital from an accelerator in the Valley. And uh, yeah, so I mean, I've been doing that for the past year and a half. I'd gotten into the LSE about two years ago, so before I started my company. So I deferred it last year, but then thought, why not pick up a master's while I'm at it? And uh, yeah, right now I'm juggling the startup and uh, yeah, the master's. So it's, it's been an interesting journey. Wow. And how about you? What are your plans for the future? Short term, long term? Yeah, I mean, the idea is uh, primarily to work around entrepreneurship ecosystems mm -hmm. in these three geographies. So find a link about how we can get, let's say, the European ecosystem up to speed with the value and see how that can also play an impact with developing economies like India. And uh, just sort of having experience in these three locations just gives me a bit of a unique insight. So I'm looking at venture capital as well. So how we can empower the next generation of entrepreneurs. And uh, yeah, so I mean, that's definitely on the spectrum. But apart from that, just running my own firm. So the idea is to move to the valley, take that forward and uh, yeah, see where things go from there. Um, now, LJ, can you tell us a bit more about the jobs that the kind of jobs that students from LSE are going into, um, and whether you see the job market changing already? Yeah, absolutely brilliant. Thank you, thank you very much for inviting me. First off, um, just to just to ask, are all of you from LSE? Put your hands up. Yeah. Okay. How many of you used LSE careers before? Oh, good. Okay. Um, so just for those of you who don't know um, what LSE careers is, it's as it says on the um, tins, it's the careers and employment and services. Um, that we offer here at, at LSE. So um, whether that be careers events or one-on-one -on -one coaching or helping you think about um, further education or building your business, um, we're hopefully there to support you as you navigate the, the careers maze. Um, I've been working at LSE Careers for the last six years. Um, when I first joined, my manager said to me, students, when they leave, they either turn left and go to the city or they turn right and go to Westminster. Um, and that's one of the things that I've always remembered. And actually, the statistics um, that we collect and the data that we have um, does reflect that. Um, so banking and finance are um, the top choice for, for LSE students, followed closely behind by politics, government, um, related roles. And then behind that, we have um, areas such as education, training, um, consulting, which, by the way, are the areas of growth in the future of work. So if you're interested in that, then you're onto um, a good thing. You're not going to be taken over by robots. Um, students, they find employment um, across the entire globe, as you would expect. So I think the top areas, the top countries that students go to, UK, China, India, the States um, and India. And the good news, and most of you are LSE students or recent alumni, is that 90% of you will have found work or um, will be continuing with your studies um, six months after graduation so that's a great statistic and should fill you with confidence even though you might not feel like that right now um, I guess the question for LSE careers at the moment is that 90% is that going to stay the same with the way that technological advances um, are, are, are speeding up so quickly um, so our role at the moment within the careers department is to equip students with the skills to be able to deal with the way um, that the workforce is changing um, I think one of the things, and it probably throws the entire question of this, the title of the panel, into doubt, is um, I think the question is, is it a, a utopia or a dystopia? Actually, we're not talking about an imagined state in the future. The future of work is here. And if you look at things like, for example, Goldman Sachs, who hired 600 equity traders back in 2000 in their New York offices, and they now have two equity traders in their offices. Um, recently, we spoke with um, one of our employers, a multinational um, company, and they, um, they are currently sitting on the technological software um, to be able to replace 1,000 people working in their call centers. Um, and the only thing that's stopping them at the moment are the ethical implications of getting rid of so many members of staff. So the question for us at, at, in careers is, are we ready, are our students ready for this enormous shift um, in the workforce and how, again, do we best um, prepare them for, for those changes? Fantastic, thank you. Um, so, here we are this evening to decide whether the future of work, as LJ has said, will be a utopia or a dystopia, or in fact if that future is now, um, and if not, maybe it'll be somewhere in between. So, I want to gauge the mood of you guys in the audience. If you want to get out your phones or devices and go to the Poll Everywhere link, which you'll see on the screen, um, 
and you'll be able to vote about whether you feel more optimistic, more pessimistic about the future of work, and then we'll talk about it. So go for it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh. Okay, quite a divided audience. Um, leaning towards optimism. Oh, even more. Fantastic. Um, leaning towards optimism, um, but with you know with significant people who are doubting. So let's see if your um, your views will have changed over the course of the evening about what we talk about further on. Um, but thank you all for taking part. I'm still taking. Oh, oh no. <laughs> Just turned all the way around by the end. Um, cool. So I'm going to ask the panel for a couple of things that really worry them about the future of work and a couple of things that really excite them. Um, and then I'm going to ask you and the audience the same question um, and limit it just to one response. Um, and then, by the magic of the poll, we'll be able to see your comments and we can pick out a few of them. Um, so, do we want to start? Um, could you tell us a few things that you see as really exciting developments and opportunities in the world of work? Sure. Uh, so I think there's uh, definitely quite a few things that is out in the media, right? So we've listened to about how robots are coming for our jobs and how there's going to be a huge impact and people are, let's say, not going to be doing the same work that uh, we had for the past 10, 20 years. Uh, the difference this time in the narrative is that this is the, doesn't just affect your blue-collar uh, you know, jobs, but also white-collar jobs. So that's why it's a bigger sort of scenario that gets portrayed in the media. But also remember that a media needs to sort of grab eyeballs. So that's why there's this painted future of, let's say, people who get totally demolished by robots, right? Now, when you actually think about it rationally, uh, there's a huge component of work that can only be done by people. So you can actually have, uh, let's say, accountants who require to go through a lot of your financial data and understand what's going on with uh, giving you advice for your future portfolio. Now, a lot of robotic work can only be done in sort of analyzing, let's say, your uh, financial statements and seeing what you've done in the past. But giving you creative advice for the best future course of action can only be done by a human where you actually look at how can he sort of understand what your priorities are. And... Uh, yeah, I think one of the things that really is exciting is the fact that creativity, so a lot of uh, robotic tasks that are getting, uh, let's say, I mean, panned out by uh, jobs is that uh, you have these mundane sort of repetitive tasks. So something like uh, going through a lot of data that's been uh, done in the past. So your financial statements, let's say even accountants who look at them are uh, not going to be done by robots when there's, uh, let's say, a demand for you to sort of bring in a whole different analysis to it. Uh, so this analysis aspect is something that can be done much better by humans as compared to something that robots can do. Uh, same thing with, uh, so one of my best friends is actually a dentist. And uh, so there's a huge speak about uh, 3D printing and about how robots can actually do a lot of your dental procedures. But one of the biggest, uh, let's say, use cases or rather one of the biggest things that dentists need to right now take care of is the emotional aspect that gets played when doctors come in. Uh, so patients not just uh, require a treatment, right? They need to be sort of told uh, what sort of analysis needs to go in and how can that surgery best take place. So these are aspects where you require this human element. So there's definitely a lot of dystopia that gets painted, but there's a lot of aspects that just can't be taken away by robots. Cool. Um, and is there anything particularly new that you see or particularly developing um, recently that can give us more reason for optimism, apart from the fact that humans hopefully can't be replaced? So McKinsey actually just did a study, and uh, they spoke about how with the current technology, it's just about 5% of jobs that can get totally automated. But there's a 30% chance that about 15 to 20% of each job gets, uh, let's say, redefined. So a robot might be able to do a certain task. Humans actually need to come in and analyze how we can sort of become a lot more creative and do tasks surrounding that task. So let's look at radiologists. Uh, a lot of scans in developing countries especially can actually be read by these robots now. So what that does is sort of bring down the cost of these scans and doctors can actually look at better patients now. They can look at better frequency of numbers of people actually coming in. And because the cost goes down, a lot many more patients can actually get this treatment now. 
So that's a huge new improvement because only once these costs can go down can healthcare actually be spread out to the market. Okay. Slowly, how about you? Any developments or opportunities that you would yeah, actually what Drup said sort of feeds beautifully into what I want to talk about when it comes to new areas of work. Uh, when we talk about the future, we're all very worried about robots taking over. But then which this also sort of makes us think about areas of work which people in which people can't be replaced, as you said. And the care economy is something that we are now talking about increasingly in this sort of uh, space because because of the relational or emotional value that care work has, it, it isn't as easily automated as other jobs. But this re relational quotient also makes it harder to assess the quality of work or assess the quality of jobs and set standards in uh, this workspace. And here the public sector has a big role to play in setting minimum standards for these sort of jobs. Uh, and they also have a big role to play in terms of providing training to workers to enjoy, ensure a higher quality of, uh, of care. I don't want to get into a lot of detail into this, but if you're interested, you, sh you should read work by Susan Himmelwhite. She's done a lot of work, and other feminist economists who've been working on this for a while now. Oh, why this is exciting. <laughs> I see my fellow Gender Institute person <laughs> laughing with me. <laughs> why this is exciting is um, care work can finally now be brought into the mainstream, and we've been sort of pushing this away and not looking at it as work, but as something that women are supposed to do by virtue of being women. But now, thank, uh, finally, thanks to the future work and this sector being an important area where workers can be engaged, we're finally talking about care work, which is very exciting. Yeah. Yep. Um, and Elder, how about you? Developments, opportunities that you really think? Um, yeah, well, I overall, I think it's um, a really exciting prospect, even though, well, 50-50 at the moment. Um, I think my two main um, reasons to be excited um, are, first off, the, just the pure opportunity. Um, there is something exciting about the, the unknown, but the, the way that students, um, we're saying, can now individualize their careers. So whereas maybe our parents, our grandparents, um, if they were farmers, they would then become farmers, or um, you would have a contact um, through your, your parents, and you would then go into a career via that. Um, I looked at, um, indeed, the job site just before I came out, and there are over 127,000 full-time jobs in London at the moment. So there, there, is a lot, um, there is a lot of opportunity, whereas before the business would have owned you and molded you into the brand that they felt was most suitable and um, now students are given the opportunity to jump between different jobs so the average um, time that students spend in a job might be 18 months and then they move to a different job they move to a different sector so they have so much more opportunity to experience different um, aspects of the of the work environment and um, flexible working so the opp opportunity to um, change your hours whereas before we have this nine to five, there's so much more flexibility there. Remote working as well because of um, technological advances as well. So there is a lot of flexibility and opportunity there. Um, I think as Dorov mentioned as well, the, um, the need to collaborate more with your peers, with other people on the international level as well. So whereas people think automation means you're never going to speak to another human being again, actually it's the, 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 the exact opposite and, um, and skills that are going to be required more is, is going to be th are going to be things like emotional intelligence, um, deductive reasoning, those kind of things. Um, I think what's interesting is actually this isn't um, a new phen phenomenon. It's being banded around to something that um, is just happening now, it's going to be happening in the future. But actually women have been doing this for, for years, and I'm sure you can talk more about it as well, um, the way that they've had to juggle um, their work and um, looked at when they go back into the workforce after having children to kind of sidestep before they go up. So the different ways of working isn't a new thing, but it's going to be affecting um, a lot of people. I see that as an opportunity. And the other reason I think to be excited, and, and it's something that I cover as I head up the um, entrepreneurial work that we do at LSE Careers, is the um, possibilities for social um, innovation. And never before has there been a need for new, fresh, sustainable ideas and solutions to tackle some of the the world's most pressing issues. So um, I did a quick look, um, I had a quick check at some of the businesses that we have been funding and supporting um, at LSE, but also on a global level, the idea of these ocean cleaning devices um, that can clean the coastlines, um, high-tech toys that help severely autistic children um, socialise better, devices that help deaf um, people detect dangers, um, and these elevated buses that I haven't seen before, but they um, hope to curb pollution. So there are so many opportunities in this area that I think is a, is a great cause for excitement as well. Wow, that sounds very exciting. Okay, so we're currently hovering. Okay, a bit more pessimistic. Great, that was what we were hoping for. Um, we're now going to turn to some of the things that worry you, perhaps. So maybe we'll reverse the order and come back to LJ. You ready? Um, 
and talk a bit more about the things that worry you about the future of work. Yeah, um, so despite being very excited, um, I think there is also um, there is also a lot of concern um, to be had, I think, around the speed by which all of this is happening. So um, technological advances are happening so quickly that there is very little regulation in some of the areas. Um, policy advisors um, need to be better educated and, and programs need to be better funded to understand what is happening. Um, and I think that's that's a that's a that's a real worry. Um, and also, all of this is happening against a very unstable backdrop, um, with socio-economic factors coming into place. You've got the immediate threats of something like Brexit, but then you also have um, globalization, urbanization, um, and I think it, it's 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 not a stable, a concrete kind of foundation on which to see these um, technological advancing moving moving so fast. Um, so while things are so unsettling. Um, I know this morning there was a there was a discussion with um, Theresa May on on television about um, university fees um, and how fees will be associated with potential um, income in the future. But actually, we don't know how much people are going to be earning in the future. We don't know what kind of jobs people are going to be having. So while things are so unstable and uncertain, include introducing things like that is slightly um, concerning. But maybe while um, structural changes are happening, having something like, and I think we'll, these guys will probably talk about it as well, but the universal basic income um, just to help stabilise um, some of these changes and give people the security that um, that they need when so much change is happening. Um, and the other thing I think is is slightly um, concerning, and the students do come to us worrying about these things, um, are the, the kind of psychological impact um, that this all has. Um, interestingly, one of the um, the skills, and we've just talked about it, that are going is going to be very valuable is social skills, emotional intelligence, as we talked about before. That younger generations are becoming more and more withdrawn because of technology. So actually, if we need our children um, to be more engaging um, with other human beings, then actually, if they're on the screen all the time, then that's that's a real worry. Um, so I think just looking at, and I think we'll talk about it later, the future generations as well, but looking at how we equip them so that they're ready for these changes. How are we doing? Okay. We're stable. Um, Serene, what are you worried about? Yeah, I think that one thing that really worries me is the move towards uh, informalization of work from a more formal structure of work, uh, because the traditional worker-employer model has been the basis on which a lot of protections have been accorded to workers. Uh, protect, I'm thinking protections like minimum hours of work or protections around occupational safety and health. And as the employer is not is now not immediately recognizable, uh, these protections have also start, sort of started eroding, um, which makes the worker at the most very uh, puts the worker in a very vulnerable, disadvantaged position. So, for example, I was uh, back home in uh, in Bombay December, and my mum uses this app called Urban Clap, where you can sort of go on and I don't know if you heard of it, but you can enlist services, services like couch cleaning or nannies and pennies. And my mum got me a service, not a couch cleaning because I'm not a couch. And I don't own a couch. But she got me a massage. And I was speaking to this worker and she said, the, um, before knocking on my door, she didn't know what to expect or who to expect behind the door. And that is a constant worry she has because every time she knocks on this employer's or service contractor's uh, house, she doesn't know what to expect. And that plays a huge role on her mental stress, on her stress levels when it comes to occupational safety and health. Um, so that's that was one example. But in general, the informalization sort of disadvantages workers more than it does anybody else. And another worry you have is that uh, unions haven't been able to keep up with uh, the changes in the world of work. Um, union coverage, global union coverage, has been declining consistently. I think the last report I read which was by the International Trade Union Confederation, the ITUC said that global trade union coverage was at 7%. Um, and increasingly, young people haven't been engaging with uh, unions, or unions haven't been able to get young people to join the labor movement, which is a gap they should be working towards bridging, and they should do it soon. How we do it? All right. Um, yeah. So I think uh, one of the issues is that uh, people sort of need to upskill and reskill, mm -hmm. so that's not happening fast enough. So that's definitely an issue which uh, needs to be taken into consideration when you have robots sort of learning these different things, right? So you need to always keep on your toes. So gone are the days that you say that I have a master's and uh, I have a PhD so I can sort of be foolproof in the work environment. So you always sort of need to look at how you can differentiate yourself from, uh, let's say, the crowd, not just the crowd, but also these robots now. So that's something which needs to happen a lot faster. 
So reskilling definitely needs to be on the radar for any professional. So that's definitely one of the things which needs to be done soon enough for it to become positive for you. Uh, the other thing is uh, education. So we need to sort of understand how we get a lot more creativity or thinking-based education. So there's actually, I'll give you an example. In a lot of Asian countries, there's a very negative connotation when you say that you're studying uh, philosophy, for instance, right? So they're very numbers driven. And uh, if you say that you're studying something like maths or STEM, you're seen as a lot uh, better in the eyes of people. One of the things though, uh, so I've picked up philosophy as one of my units here. And uh, during one of our initial classes, we actually had this case of a trolley problem. So a trolley problem basically states that there's a trolley that's run loose. And uh, if it goes on its current path, it basically has five people in front. So it'll go ram into these five people, killing them. But you have a lever, which if you pull, you can actually change the course of this trolley, which actually goes towards one person. So it's, it's a huge ethical dilemma. And a lot of flack that philosophers receive is that, how does this help or is this really realistic? Well, what's this being applied to? So I just read this article about two days ago and philosophers are actually working with autonomous cars now. So a lot of autonomous cars actually have this issue. When uh, someone's seated inside and the car's going down a path, there a person just pops up in the middle. So what does the car do? Does it still go ahead straight or does it sort of change course and kill the person who's sitting inside the car? Again, how does this change when there's more people in front or more people inside? How does it change when there's babies on board? So all these ethical dilemmas are something that uh, robots just can't solve for you, right? So you need philosophers to actually do the work for you. So we need to sort of start thinking about education a lot more differently. And I don't know if that's happening in the current ecosystem. So that's something which is a huge cause of concern if it's not tackled soon enough. Okay, thank you. Um, so now, I don't know if you guys had a chance to submit some of your comments, some of the things that you're either excited about or concerned about. Um, Josie, could you bring some up on the screen? Um, there's still time to submit now, so if you've just had a genius moment. Okay, I don't know if you guys want to pick up any of these that particularly grab you. I mean, this one, what changes the education system needs to implement? That's kind of something you touched on. I think the the more leisure time is a really interesting um, point. I don't know what the root of it is, but um, but I think one thing that employers say at the moment is they notice the immediate skills gap, um, so that a, a lot of graduates don't have um, the soft skills um, required to do a lot of the communications and negotiations um, at work. And actually, a lot of the soft skills are required through things like volunteering, extracurricular activities, um, entrepreneurial um, programs. Um, so if students, if if education system was able to allow more time for that so that students can become um, more that can, so they can develop those soft skills and I think that's probably positive and I think you probably need a break from your studies as well which is probably where half of that um, point came from as well but I think it's an interesting point. I'm interested about the climate change one as well I'm not sure who submitted it do you guys think that's something to be optimistic about with the future of work perhaps being able to do more about it or <coughs> negative about as in something that worries you i don't know what you guys think um so i was thinking about climate change and um um i think you mentioned that when it comes to uh, cleaning oceans and new technologies but what i was thinking about was uh, the gendered impact of climate change because uh, women are disadvantaged when it comes to this because they have they are less physically mobile than men are and they have unequal access to resources uh, which means that women in rural areas now have to walk longer to gather fuel or to collect water, which is a time tax on them. It takes away from their, the time they can spend in paid work or care work. Um, but there have been initiatives. So, for example, the National Impro uh, Rural Employment Guarantee Act in India, uh, the Mandrega, uh, they ran a program with this cooperative in Kerala, and women were paid uh, to carry solar panels per, per solar panel up to their village, which served a dual purpose because it kind of equipped the village with renewable energy and it also generated, generated jobs for women. And so I think this is definitely an area which can be explored more in the future. The question from when will AI get creative? Uh, Google's lead in the field has shown that AI can take over more creative jobs as well. I don't know what you guys, has anyone got any strong? 
So I'll actually pick up the one regarding creative thinking incorporated to STEM education. So it's uh, primarily whatever the requirements are, right? So it's not quite just creative thinking and STEM, but about, uh, let's say, what the needs of the future will be. So if, if you look at the same uh, example with hospitals and doctors, so they do study STEM subjects and they come in there to, because that's the primary requirement. But if machines can scan cancers a lot faster and a lot better than a lot more accurately than uh, doctors themselves. So you actually have their jobs shifting in a sense. So you require them to become better communicators, better empathy healers. So you require doctors to sort of have a dialogue with patients and their families, which a lot of times doesn't get done as well as well. So a lot of times when you enter hospitals, you actually have your energy just go down uh, because there's just such a smug environment, right? it doesn't quite feel that you're in a good place because there's illness all around. So how can we sort of change this? The environment needs to be rethought of. Uh, doctors, just their interaction with patients need to go, needs to become a lot more uh, just positive as well. So that's where doctors can actually get, uh, let's say, education in a different manner where they're allowed to sort of look at psychology and see how patients can actually feel better while they're getting treated. So when computers can actually scan these cancers better, you actually have doctors thinking of those areas. I'm interested in this one as well, the mentality of the tech industry, innovation for innovation's sake. Um, like, is that always going to be the best thing? And I don't know if you guys think, is there, is there a kind of limit as to, to innovation within the workplace or more generally? And at what point? Yeah, I don't know if you guys have strong. Hmm. It's a tough one. <laughs> okay, I'll give you a couple more minutes to submit, and then if not... Um. So there was an interesting one about the potential wealth gap due to AI. Yeah. So I think that's uh, definitely one of the causes of concern, right? So you definitely have, um, let's say, a huge concern where there can be a lot of wealth generated and uh, something like a Google, which already owns, uh, let's say, a trillion dollars plus, can actually have uh, a lot better mechanisms to do even high frequency trading in the future. So Goldman Sachs itself comes out and says that we're no longer a banking company, but we're a tech company. So that can have an adverse effect into how wealth placement is, uh, let's say a few, five, 10 years down the line. But uh, projects like universal basic income actually have shown that uh, there can be sort of that baseline set where people are given their monthly requirements. So countries like Finland, uh, y Combinator in the Valley has also actually uh, done a pilot with Oakland where they actually give out a certain set amount of money to each individual family so they can actually, I mean, survive and look at creative ways of doing other work. So your leisure time also gets uh, rolled into that. So that's an interesting aspect, but again, needs to sort of uh, see how that can be worked on a mass scale. Um, since you speak of universal basic income, so I know there's arguments on both sides, for and against, and we're still generating research and data on this, like the Finland experiment, uh, which we should know things about by the end of this year, I believe. Mm -hmm. uh, interestingly, India also ran an experiment on the universal basic income in 2010, between 2010 and 2013, where um, this was with guys standing and uh, self-employed women's association, association, SEVA and UNICEF, and they picked 6,000 individuals across eight or nine villages, I'm not very sure. Um, and they were given an unconditional monthly income, which was slightly above the poverty line for that point in time. Um, and one, and the, the things they found were that uh, economic security improved, uh, school enrollment and attendance rates improved, nutritional status of the household improved, and they didn't find anything to say that people stopped working, which has been one of the main arguments against having a universal, universal basic income. Um, which supposes that people only work for financial security, which isn't true because work also has a social value and people work to, for personal satisfaction, uh, to build relationships and networks. Um, so what the UBI, what the universal basic income or citizen's income does is it provides a security net so, uh, for, so that some people don't have to work three or four jobs to just not survive. And this is why I think that the basic income can be used as a very effective model to sort of reduce income inequalities, which was, I think, another question on, there was another question on income inequalities. And I think the UBI can be a great tool to do that. Okay. Uh, if we haven't got any new ones coming in, 
I will move on to our final part of the event, which we've picked up a bit on already about uh, future generations. So do you think that younger generations are being given the right skills and the right training for the future? Um, and if not, how should that change? Um, so Drew, do you want to start? Um, yeah, so I think uh, we, we can't sort of, as I said earlier, right? So you can't really rely on just formal education and uh, think that we're going to be okay after we get a certain set of number of degrees. So I think people need to sort of be on their toes, uh, see how they can do complementary work and take advantage of uh, what the robots are doing, right? So you can actually have a lot of positives that get drawn out from here. So if, if mundane tasks are getting done by these robots, how do you sort of get in that creative aspect and how do you sort of basically just leverage that? Because as soon as that happens and as soon as you have robots doing these mundane tasks, costs actually go down. So even uh, with something like autonomous cars with Uber, right? So Dara Khosrowsahi, the current CEO of Uber, actually spoke about at, spoke about this at the World Economic Forum. So he spoke about uh, how they actually will have double the number of drivers in about next 10 years. Uh, there's a lot of requirement for, let's say, once AI takes over and there's autonomous vehicles on the road, there would be a requirement for people to actually uh, create, uh, let's say, jobs for building up that AI, training it to actually scan roads a lot better. And uh, apart from that, deliveries will also go up. So you have something like an Uber Eats. So once, uh, because of these autonomous cars, once drivers are sort of replaced, the prices go down and you actually have food delivery uh, getting sort of going up. So you actually require a lot of delivery boys for that. Al along with that, uh, there's self-driving trucks as well. Uh, so there isn't a requirement for a driver right now. But you have people who would need to sort of get these packages into these uh, trucks. So you actually have a complementary skill set that these drivers can actually take over. So no one in the mainstream media talks about these aspects just because you need eyeballs and that gets generated only if there's a dystopian future being predicted. Um, so the question of skills, uh, skills and world of work is actually a cause of concern. Uh, because while the world of work is changing, the education system still sort of remains in the past. Uh, and employers are increasingly looking for soft skills, so skills like empathy or teamwork, which are not categorically taught or marked on a transcript, and yet they are really crucial. So I think that we need a more dynamic education system that sort of focuses on these skills as well as technical skills um, if we want to bring younger people more into the future workplace in a, in a more sustainable manner. Yep. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, I'd agree with everything that's been said. I think there's, there's a really interesting report by Nesta that's just been released about the skills that um, are going to be most useful. And they do tie in with, um, with everything you said, so the idea of the fluency of ideas, active listening, critical thinking, understanding the cause of things. I hope that you guys are um, well placed for this. Um, I think going further back, though, and looking, I've got three very young children and they're at primary school and um, there is this um, really strong focus on let's teach them to code and, and to do things like that and actually by the time they're 20 and in your age coding is going to be automated so it's not going to be a useful skill to have actually they need to be as um, these guys have, uh, have said they need to be developing their emotional intelligence and yes we might have opinionated robots or robots with emotional intelligence but then we need to know what to do with those robots with emotional intelligence and we need to come together and collaborate on those um, on those things. And um, I think Drev mentioned it as well. I think the most successful people will be the ones that are mo most proactive. So they go out of their comfort zone. They don't, don't just rely on their course and their education, but they go out and they network and they meet people and they do extra. They constantly upskill. They constantly look for new opportunities to flex their skill set um, and to learn really quickly, but also to spot new opportunities. Um, and it's those skills that we need to be developing um, in in schools. Interestingly, and I'm sure a lot of you have already heard this, but over in um, Silicon Valley, where the job is, is going to be going soon, um, the leaders of the, the CEOs of these large tech companies, their children um, are sent to Forest Schools and Rudolf Steiner Schools where there are no screens and there is no technology, and they're developing the skills um, that are going to be um, useful in the future. And I think the British system um, sometimes runs the risk of stifling the, the kind of creativity that is going to be so, so useful. So I think there is a lot of work that, that needs to be done both um, in primary school, secondary, and um, higher education as well. Um, and to, to kind of pick up on that higher education, what do you think the role of that has to play in, in, in this whole discussion about younger generation and skills? Where do you think that, that sits within that? So I think um, 
I think in higher education, we need to look at not seeing ourselves as this kind of um, exam factory where there is one, one way of um, getting an education, but a much more holistic um, way. So there are a lot of initiatives um, at LSE developing. So we have a Work It Out series that, um, that is developed through LSE Careers and LSE Life that help you think about purpose and values um, and developing softer skills. Um, there are entrepreneurial programs where you can develop more innova innovation. Um, so these things are happening, but I think it's important um, to not just focus on the academic course, but see your experience at university um, as having a lot of different um, opportunities. Cool, thank you. Um, and so now we're going to return to our poll um, and want to hear back from you guys um, to hopefully make us feel more positive. Um, so I'd really like to hear from you suggestions, thoughts, comments, um, and a wish list of skills and training that you wish that the younger generations would receive. And again, we'll get your suggestions up on the big screen um, and pick up on a few of them. It's really unnerving seeing it come across. <laughs> What's it going to say? Future is definitely technology. <laughs> Got to the benefit of the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> We've got a civic education, empathy, um, servience to our robot overlords, uh, self organized learning environments. Openness, love, empathy, solidarity, standing up for one another. It's interesting how much the soft skills actually are on the wish list when we're actually talking about automation and the and this is a big one which theories will choose depending on sustainability technology and so on. <laughs> to network with potential we have employees. seminars on that yeah. so you can come <laughs> to that <laughs> um, and we actually have a few minutes so um, we anyone wants to particularly expand on their suggestion um, or kind of share a bit more um, then that, would that be okay um, feel free to raise your hand we have roving mics um, we don't have too long so keep your comments brief if possible but Feel free. There's one at the front and one right at the back. And one right up at the back. Sorry. <laughs> okay. Um, yeah. Quick question. Um, a lot of the interventions that you guys suggested uh, require on require institutional change or um, interventions by institutions. And how do you see that taking place at a time when trust in institutions is at an all-time low? So whether it be government, educational or otherwise, you know, um, universal basic income, changes in the education system, changing the very idea of work requires that kind of intervention. And uh, people now look to, I don't know, South Africans who shoot rockets and not government for change. I think one of the things I mentioned, uh, which was the union movement sort of dropping the ball, could be also a potential way to bring these changes. Because in the past, they have managed to bring workers under a lot of labor regulations. And moving the future, I see no reason why they can't work with new forms of work and bring in protections to workers in these new forms of work. 
Yeah, I, I agree. It's a, it's a difficult time. I think um, I think universities um, play a big part. Um, so in terms of lobbying to government, um, and I know that LSE do do that and have worked on things like Brexit and the future work related to that, um, working with Whitehall to come up with new solutions, um, students working with startups that are lobbying um, these kind of people. And um, I think, yes, we are reliant on the large institutions, but there's there's a lot of focus now on community um, grassroots organisations um, taking control and really pushing for, for change as well. Um, so first of all, I'm a student here at LSE. I wanted to thank you for taking part in the panel. Um, I was quite surprised to see how um, generally on the, um, on the, say, the whiteboard, um, the concept of creative AI took over. And I would say that automation took over tonight as well in the way that we interacted so uh, until now, basically. So my question is, uh, since I would rather see a transition to human creativity personally, uh, do you think there will be more room for creative or vocational work in the future? Do you think automation means a straightforward transition to this kind of environment, if at all? <laughs> I guess the answer. From, from what I said, I right? guess the answer so you is definitely yes. Have, yeah, yeah. Uh, from basically from what I said, I mean, there's a lot of uh, tasks that you also need to think of the economics of this. Uh, so robots can't actually uh, be trained to do a one-time thing. So a lot of uh, let's say financial advice that gets spoken to um, a certain ten percent of this crowd won't actually be applicable to ninety percent of it. So robots will actually only be trained to do tasks which become a lot of high frequency because uh, you can't actually train a robot to give a personalized advice to someone. But again, take that same advice and retrofit it to someone else. So only a human mind can actually think of these different tasks about how uh, an application might make sense for this person or rather this financial advice might say, make sense for the other person. Uh, so when robots also get trained, when these algorithms sort of get made, they need to be get made for a big use case so that the economics works. So that's something which is also an interesting factor to take into place. Uh, so a lot of jobs which do require just a one-time touch point will only make sense for humans to do. And that's something which actually might become a lot more high paying in the future. Thank you. Well, we've probably got time for one more comment, suggestion, question, if there is one. Hi. Um, so building on what he said, actually, um, so don't you think that if AI were developed in a way that it could reach um, an intelligence similar to humans, that a lot of these creative human skills could be um, replaced? So there's, uh, yeah, there's definitely a chance that that might happen. But again, uh, right now, it's more of a, just a tale that media likes to tell, right? So right now, so that's why I bring up the McKinsey uh, study as well. So with current technology, it's just 5% of jobs that can actually be wiped out totally by automation. And most of the other jobs, there's just a small part of it that actually gets affected. And humans can actually work around to do things which aren't, I mean, presupposed by robots right now. So there's definitely a chance that that might happen. But if that does happen, there's also complementary jobs that get created on the side. So it's almost like a neo-Luddite, uh, let's say, viewpoint that we think of when, if, if, do, if robots do come in, they actually take away everything doesn't work that way. It hasn't worked that way in the past. And I don't see that happening in the future as well. Because as soon as these number of jobs that actually get uh, automated, there's always uh, a certain set of the other jobs that get created. Same thing happened with Ford, right? So when you had horses get replaced with cars, people thought they won't uh, have any more jobs and you won't have horsemen actually getting these carriages. But what did cars do? They just created a lot more access, uh, gave a lot more people transportation. So it's just examples like those that we can draw back from history. And right now, the narrative is a little bit more dystopian just because there's a lot many more jobs that are getting affected. But it's, again, a small percentage within those jobs that gets affected. So yeah, I don't know if I completely answer your question. But basically, the point is that there's a lot of complementary skill set that only humans can bring in that actually also gets enhanced as soon as some certain jobs get automated. But do you think that will be the case for a very long time? Don't you think eventually, um, if AI can do like anything that humans can do, then there won't really be a place for any complementary 
um, role for humans? Uh, so again, a very, I mean, it's, it's, it's pretty hard to sort of predict what happens 100, 200 years down the line. Uh, but I mean, if we do learn from history, right, and everything that has shown us up to now, I mean, there has been technological advancement, which is done, which is, I mean, got us to the moon. And uh, there's definitely a lot of jobs that I do see sort of disappearing, but a lot of them also get replaced. So it's, it's just the same thing. I mean, I, I don't know of any particular, let's say, technology that actually can do that right now. And it, it'll just be taking a shot in the dark by saying that it might or might not happen. But yeah, human intelligence is uh, quite impressive as well. And I guess we need to sort of place certain importance on that too. Okay, thank you very much for all of your questions. Um, finally, before we finish, I'm just going to let uh, go back to our panel and ask them all to say whether they feel mostly positive or mostly negative about the future of work. Um, LJ, we'll start with you. Um, well, given that I head up innovation and LSE <laughs> careers, I'm going to be um, a lot more positive. I think um, I think we need to be aware of the, the, the potential dangers, but I think on the whole, um, definitely more positive and to encourage everyone to develop their softer skills. I think um, uh, we were talking about the, the human element before, but they, they call this the fourth industrial rev revolution. Um, whereas before with um, industrial revolutions, the focus was very much on becoming more like um, more kind of like robots almost, understanding technology better. Um, this, with, with this situation, it's a lot more focused on becoming more human, um, which is interesting. And so I'd encourage you, all of you to, um, yeah, to develop those skills whilst at university. Well, I'm absolutely positive, and it's uh, very exciting to be a woman in the world of work now because we're asking for more, we're claiming more space, and I see the movement only is growing further, which is exciting, and I'm very positive about the future of work. Seems, seems like a biased panel, but uh, <laughs> likewise. Uh, so there's definitely a chance uh, that we do sort of get stumbled upon, but one of the biggest things that we need to take into consideration is that humans are adaptable. So that's just one of the bring biggest things that makes me a lot more positive. Uh, but yeah, I mean, there is definitely uh, this need for us to upskill and rescale, for sure. Fantastic. Well, thank you so much to our speakers um, and to audience for a fascinating discussion, which I hope you all enjoyed. We've obviously only scratched the surface of these issues, but I invite you to continue the conversation over a drink outside the theatre. Um, there are a lot more exciting events coming up at the festival this week, so please take a copy of the programme on your way out. Um, and please give us a feedback via this incredible polling system, pollev.com slash LSE feedback. Thank you.